Welcome to this special episode of the John Henry Weston Show, where we are very pleased to bring you back a guest that is very well known to you, Dr. Scott Hahn, who has actually done it again, written a book that's very timely, and we're going to want to hear about all about really what to do in our society to bring us back to sanity. You're going to want to stay tuned. Let's begin, as we always do, with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Scott, welcome back to the program. It's great to be with you again, John Henry. Well, you have a really a knack of writing books that pertain to the moment. Now, that's that's providence, I'm sure, but last time we spoke to you about a book about death and resurrection of the body right in April uh, of last year during the you know height of concern about death due to coronavirus. And here we are talking about the uh, future for rebuilding society in the midst of what seems like societal breakdown. Well, I would like to be able to take all the credit, but I can't. You know, we wanted a book to come out uh, in time for Easter, dealing with the resurrection. So hope to die, the Christian meaning of death and the resurrection of the body seemed timely, but little did we know how timely it would prove to be with the pandemic. And likewise, we were targeting a late fall date that would coincide with the presidential election. But when <laughs> that presidential election just happened, you know, it is right and just why the future of civilization depends upon true religion, again, took on a divine timeliness for which we could take no credit, but express much gratitude because the message is not only timely, but also timeless. And I think that's what so many Catholics in America forget, that there really is a perennial philosophy. There's a perennial teaching about the relationship between the supernatural order and the natural order. And so easily and so frequently, these two are merged and confused. And so, like, you know, St. Thomas would say, we distinguish to unite, not to confuse and not to separate and oppose, but in distinguishing between the natural order, where we're humans, and the supernatural order, where we're children of God, you know, that distinction is something that is mm, seismic and almost impossible to exaggerate. And so what I what I decided to do with my co-author and good friend, Brandon McGinley, was to uh, seize the nettle, you know, to talk about religion. In some ways, the most offensive topic, the most misunderstood subject, you know, and not just going back to Marx, whom we quote in the beginning, when Marx describes religion as the opium of the masses, but even among faithful today, and I'm reminded of what it was like to be growing up in the 70s, where you would hear Christians singing one song like... Uh, I'm not religious, I just love the Lord, you know, or I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. That's been much more common, say, the last 10 or 15 years, but it's sort of like, you know, Princess Bride, you keep using that word, but I don't think you, you know, I don't think it means what you think it means. And so we go back to classical antiquity, you know, so that in a sense, we press pause when it comes to the Judeo-Christian tradition, or what we would call supernatural revelation with regard to the true religion, the Catholic faith. And we just look at religion through the eyes of, well, Plato and Aristotle, but especially Cicero and a little bit of Seneca, because it's surprising to people to discover 
that religion is an essential virtue, that in the natural law tradition, you have many different virtues, and virtues are to the soul, as far as the ancients were concerned, what muscles are to the body, or what intelligence is to the intellect. Virtues what make you a veer, a man, mature, so that you can do more and more good, more and more easily for more and more people. That's virtue. And there are many virtues, you know, honesty, thrift, patience, magnanimity, but they're basically grouped under the four cardinal virtues because cardinal means you know, it hinges on these things. And so prudence and temperance and fortitude, but the chief moral virtue of the four cardinal virtues for the ancients, for Augustine, for Aquinas is justice, making sure that you're capable of giving to others what you owe them. Well, I mean, that's sort of like plain and simple except that we usually approach the virtue of justice from below, looking at, you know, the low-hanging fruit of transactional justice, you know, uh, you pay for your groceries before you leave, and that is commutative justice, and then, of course, there's a lot of discussion about social justice, the equity, the fairness that we owe to others, especially the needy among the members of our community, and that's distributive justice, but it's almost entirely forgotten that there are forms of justice that are transcendent. That is, they transcend our capacity to repay. You can't show justice to your parents by giving them life and love, food, clothing, and shelter and nurture. I mean, maybe in the end when they're dying, but even then you're not giving them life. So what do you do? You honor your father and mother. It's the virtue of pietas, piety, likewise with your country. Right. So we're in a we're in a situation right now where it seems like the world is honestly a billion miles from the 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 concept of God. In fact, it seems like secularism is coming on like a storm. We are being hounded out of any kind of religious perspective in the public sphere. It really does seem like they're invoking a state religion of anti-religion and yet you're proposing this way forward. Explain that for us, if you would, please. Well, you know, I just feel as though Catholic Americans can end up being much more American than they are Catholic. So you've got to go back to the basics and lay the foundation in every generation. And so, you know, I, we, we speak in the book about this bank robbery that took place in Sweden back in the 70s when two robbers took, I think, of four people hostage and for five days until the Swedish police finally got them out with tear gas and force but in the trial, the world was shocked when these hostages spoke out in defense of their captors. And that's how the Stockholm Syndrome entered our vocabulary, because we discovered something that psychologists had known. You internalize the mentality and the, 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 the way of thinking of your captors just as a coping mechanism. Well, you know, in certain traumatic events, it's perhaps more understandable. It's less noticeable. But I do think in order to kind of cope with a secular society, and it's not just secular, it's secularistic. That is to say, it regards religion as irrelevant, purely relativistic, and downright dangerous if you dare to bring it out of the public square to conduct social discourse. And so how do you cope with that? Well, you privatize your religion, and you adopt a notion of religion that is inherently relativistic. And you do it gradually. You don't, you, you do it without even noticing it. And so suddenly, you know, uh, we wake up and we're outraged. And, you know, we are offended because we're not able to exercise our rights as Americans, you know, forgetting some of the admonitions of the New Testament. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. 
you know, look at the Lord and recognize that he basically achieved his kingship through the Paschal mystery, through the death and the resurrection. But I mean, through a torturous death, we sort of glamorize crucifixion with jewelry, forgetting that it was devised as the most perfect form of torture to bring someone to the state of shock, but keep them from lapsing into unconsciousness, not just for hours, but sometimes for days. And there were no loincloths back then. So it wasn't only excruciating, it was extraordinarily humiliating out in public. And if this is how God achieves the redemption of the world, then we should see as members of his mystical body that we're called upon to suffer. He didn't suffer and die to exempt us or spare us, but rather to endow our meager sufferings with a redemptive capacity that they would never have on their own. And so, again, we shouldn't be terribly surprised that what was known for centuries as liberalism, that was really inherently, but in a disguise, a form of virulent secularism. And the agenda, the narrative was always progressive, that as we distance ourselves from religion, we approach more and more freedom. And I mean, there's so many flaws with that way of thinking, you almost have to go back to the alphabet, the multiplication tables. And that's why we're looking at the virtue of religion as the highest form of justice. It is right and just, isn't just a line lifted from the liturgy. I mean, it is a truism, except that people don't realize that if it is right and just to give God thanks and praise always and everywhere, it's our duty, but it's also our salvation, then just look at what's implied. It would be wrong and unjust not to give God thanks and praise. And it's not like a misdemeanor. It's a felony. It's not just a venial sin. It's mortal. It's not just for individuals. It's also for societies. And the catechism is pretty clear on this point. If I could just quote for a moment, paragraph 2105, where we read that the duty of offering God genuine worship concerns man both individually and socially. This is the traditional Catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies toward the true religion and the one church of Christ. Then it goes on to quote Vatican II, by constantly evangelizing people, the church works toward enabling them to infuse the Christian spirit into the mentality and mores, but also the laws and the structures of the communities in which they live. The social duty of Christians is to respect and awaken in each person the love of the true and the good. And it goes on to talk about the true religion and the social kingship of Jesus Christ. It also acknowledges freedom and other things too, but it's like, we got to get back to that and recognize that all of this is inherent in the parting words that Jesus gave the disciples when he said in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth will be given to me at the end of time. It is now mine. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, not just in all nations, but the ethne themselves, the communities are to become followers, faithful followers of Jesus. And he speaks of baptism, but also of teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you. And it's like, not just the common denominator, you know, not just the, the social justice or the private morality that we have overlapping still, although it's shrinking. No, whatsoever Christ has commanded, and then we obey. You know, it's like Mother Teresa, faithfulness, not success. You know, let the angels do the actuarial tables to figure out whether it's likely or not. But in sending them forth to the Roman Empire, talk about a pagan culture of death, their odds were zilch. And yet against yeah. all those odds, somehow 
over the course of generations, the apostles and their successors succeeded. And not all of them were faithful. Most of them weren't martyred. It was just everyday life, marriage and family and friendship and neighborhood. And I think we've got to get that ball moving again. I think we've got to recognize that a lot of these sacred mysteries that we call Catholic doctrine have sort of faded away so that most of what we think about are the social and the political controversies and how to employ a sort of minimalist, reductionist approach, natural law, let's find the common ground. Okay, it's shrinking. What do we do now? You know, And I, I just think it's time for us to say, hey, for better, for worse, let's be faithful. We're not going to win by compromising. So let's not compromise. Absolutely. It's, it's, so, it's so awesome to hear you say this. It's so awesome to hear you announce, too, that this is not a new thing. This has been the constant tradition of the church. It has seemed like for many years now, particularly probably 60 years or so, we, we seem to have abandoned that concept in, in regular society. It, it is time to bring it up back. It's so radical, though, because, I mean, the the great thought out there says, oh, how could you ever possibly do this? You're in a pluralistic society. You have to respect all the religions that are out there, by the way, now including Satanism. And uh, how are we supposed to live in a society where you're pushing your one tiny religious view and you're so extreme hardly any even of your your own uh, leadership in your church believe what you're saying right now how would you respond to them well one of my favorite illustrations in the book is the wrong way run of the defensive end for the vikings jim marshall back in the early in the early 60s he was already breaking records and he has four or five in the nfl but he isn't he's never made it into the hall of fame probably because of this one event where he picked up one of the 30 fumbles that he recovered. He holds the record for recovered fumbles. But this time, Billy Kilmer fumbled for the 49ers. He ran it back to the end zone, celebrated by tossing the ball, and promptly gave two points to the 49ers because he ran the wrong way. And so he, they scored a safety. <laughs> and, you know, you think about that. He wasn't out to betray his teammates. We tend to act in terms of what we think is right. And on the football field of life, I think many Catholics believe that pluralism is the prescription. And I would say, no, pluralism is the description. Pluralism is the empirical fact of our everyday life. And we got to get used to it at one level. But at the same time, we should recognize that pluralism is the problem, not the solution. And when Jesus says, make disciples of all nations, he adds in the end, and I am with you to the end of the age. And so when I came out with this sort of book, you know, it was really the flip side of a book that we did about, oh, three years ago for Emmaus Road called The First Society, The Sacrament of Matrimony and the Restoration of the Social Order, where I, I indicate that it's not by taking over the capital or, well, I didn't use that illustration back then. It's just simply by living the sacraments, in particular for most Catholics, living the sacrament of matrimony. And I hearken back to Father Keefe in my doctoral seminar, my first society on religion and society. That was when Newhouse had just come out with the book, The Naked Public Square. He was still a Lutheran, hadn't become a Catholic or a priest, but he was sort of approaching this through John Courtney Murray and others just saying, okay, we should all be allowed to bring out into the public square our beliefs and have those inform our voting. And so in the doctoral seminar, we were half Catholic and half evangelical, and I was still a Protestant, but I was en route to the Catholic faith. And so as we were debating and discussing this, Keefe just sort of opined unexpectedly, staring out the window. He said, you know, 
if Catholics simply lived the grace of matrimony for one generation, the result would be a transformed society, a Christian social order. Oh, but I digress. And he went back to his notes and I'm like, keep digressing. What in the world was that? It was like a flash of lightning, you know, on a bright, sunny June day. And I've thought about that ever since, because I'm convinced that the sacraments have this capacity to form a civilization, the likes of which we haven't yet really seen. Okay, the Roman Empire became christened, hardly utopian, and that's not what we're looking for anyway. But the fact is, you have in religion generally, this capacity, this potential to form civilizations. But in a true religion, the natural capacity of religion is suddenly elevated. Now, granted, this won't happen through without the cross, and not just back then, but right now. And it won't happen until Jesus doesn't just resign himself to embrace, to carry the cross, but he has to embrace it as his Father's will, and so do we. And, and really, that's the hard part, because, you know, we want all of the things to be added as a result of the kingdom of heaven being present. But our Lord says, you seek first the kingdom of heaven, then all these things will be added. Or as Pope Benedict said to the French Academy, it's one of my favorite parts of the book, where he's looking at how European civilization had once been Christendom. It was a Christian family of nations, and they didn't even think of themselves as nations primarily, but just states, and they formed a family that was sacramental. And how did it happen? Well, we formed this political party and then political action groups, and then we funded it. No, it was the Cluniac reform, among other things, where well over a thousand monasteries were established by people who wanted to worship God and to seek first the kingdom of heaven. And then the unintended consequence was Christendom, the byproduct. And this is exactly what I think our Lord is speaking of in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's what we send, we, we tend to forget, or we reverse that, you know, the tail ends up wagging the dog in the sense that, you know, if we seek first the Catholic faith for political ends, you know, if we seek first all of the things that we want to be add, want God to add, you know, we're going to end up possibly missing out on the kingdom of heaven and suffering the loss of all of these things that might be added. And so first things first, you know, heaven over earth, divine worship over human flourishing loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, more than ourselves, loving our neighbors as ourselves for the love of God, as Augustine hastens to remind us. So we don't just treat our neighbor the way he wants to be treated. We treat him the way God, the Father of all of us, wants us to be loved for the love of God. And so you go back and you realize, okay, what are we talking about? Basically, the spiritual alphabet of the Catholic faith building blocks that are not like enormous temple foundation stones, but just things that we have professed as Christians, as Catholics, most all of our lives, we just don't realize that when they're united, when they're integrated, they can unify my life, they can unite my, my spouse and me, they can also transform our family. You know, holiness is the key, and holiness is contagious if it's authentic, and so we don't draw lines and say, well, I want to be holy, but I don't care about my wife. Of course, I want her to be a saint too, but not our kids. Well, no, we want our kids to grow in holiness as well, but not the neighbors. Well, we want them as well because we're to love them as we love ourselves. But that's where we draw the line. It's the city of Steubenville, not the rest of Ohio. Well, okay, it's Ohio, but not the other 49 states. No, it's all of America. 
but not the other nations? No, make disciples of all nations makes that a non-option. And so it really is assembling our beliefs and realizing that all of this was hiding in plain view. All we got to do is turn around and recognize, okay, these building blocks have got to be reassembled and we're going to do it in order to get home to heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And in the process, we'll let the chips fall where they may. We're going to be good Americans, but we're going to remember what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 3.20. He said, our citizenship is in heaven. And he uses the technical Greek term for Roman citizenship, polytuma, but he's reminding that he's reminding the, the Philippians that they have dual citizenship. They're Philippians, but they're also children of God called to be saints. And so we're Americans, but first and foremost, we're Catholics called to be saints. And so we've got to think in terms of election cycles. But as Catholics, we also have to think in terms of generations and centuries, because that's what Mother Church is teaching us. And if we do that, we're going to plant the fall crop so that we have food in the winter. But we're also going to plant forests we might never live long enough to see so that our grandkids, and now we have 20 of those, and so we've got skin in the game, but our grandkids are going to end up with wood to build their houses, their furniture, and to stack their fireplace so they're warm in the winter. And, and it's a juggling act, to be sure. It's hard to maintain the balance. But with you know the sacraments, with spiritual direction, with honest desire to experience the grace of conversion, not just 35 years ago when I entered the church, but you know three and a half hours ago when I was doing my morning prayer, you, you wake up and just as you have to be aroused from your physical slumber each day and throughout the day, we need this grace of conversion that is ongoing. It's lifelong, it's daily, it's hourly sometimes, but it's never gonna be easy if it always involves carrying a cross. And so we should look at America and say, yeah, on the one hand, it's so much worse than we thought it would be. On the other hand, it's causing us in that darkness to recognize that the light is much brighter than we thought it was, that the good news is infinitely greater than the bad news is horrendously bad. But it's just natural to have this gravitational pull downward where we're just looking at the bad and we're kind of not exaggerating it, but fixating on it Whereas we ought to be contemplating the sacred mysteries and say, wow, okay, I, I believed them when I was young, but they're not only just as true as I thought they were, they're more beautiful than I imagined and more powerful. You know, I, I think all of this, again, is non-controversial. And so it's not about, you know, launching a consistent tirade against all of these different groups that have really strayed, not only in the world, but alas, yes, in the church, but that too is something that we have forgotten. We might fixate on the 50s when Fulton Sheen was winning Emmys, forgetting the fact that, okay, that was the exception. Full seminaries, you know, the convents too. That was never ordinary in the history of the church, you know, and so there was a strange confluence in American society, you know, all the way until it carried JFK into the White House. But press pause and say, let's get back to ordinary time because Catholic history has never been that way in any consistent manner. Even in the 13th century, as Father Walsh called it, the greatest of centuries, there was so much tension, so much infidelity disguised as, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I don't mean to go on, but this has been inside of me ever since. 
my earlier books. I'm so glad you started with the concept of suffering, because I think that really in living this out, in living out the faith, it's very challenging, particularly on that granular level of, of your own personal relationship with Christ, but also in your families. These are hard things when you live with your spouse and you raise your children. The temptation to not follow through with the gospel with regard to these very difficult situations with your children, you know, as they get older, they get into bad relationships, they might get, God forbid, but into bad marriages. And how do you treat that? How do you deal with that? If if they get into relationships that are, um, you know, homosexual and, and so on and so forth. These are, are massive challenges for people. And yet, with It Is Right and Just in your concept in the book of always keeping focused on the eternal realities and basically making heaven the goalpost and vision of the whole of life and realizing that that is true love. It gives a clear direction then for how you're supposed to take on these uh, very challenging situations, even in family life like that. Um, If I could get you to, Scott, I'd I'd love you to uh, talk about the current reality that we're living in right now in the United States with a Catholic president um, who um, is is very much um, in his push anti-Catholic in terms of where he's going on life, on family, even on faith, in this time where um, he professes himself to be Catholic, goes to Mass, that just on his first Sunday of the presidency, he came out of Mass, all the media was there. Um, address that, if you would, with um, in in the vision coming from your new book, It Is Right and Just. Okay, so I'm reminded of a couple of verses. You know, on the one hand, we read in John 18, 36, where Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, you know, and uh, he he refers to his kingdom not being of this world. Uh, oh, so you are a king. Well, yeah, but my kingship is not of this world because if it was, my servants would fight. Uh, and so he goes on not to say my kingship, therefore, is not in this world. But when you look at that moment and you freeze frame it, you recognize that even the 12 disciples who had spent three years with them still didn't get it. I mean, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, we're on a roll. We're going to, we're going to take Jerusalem by storm. It'll be winning the popularity contest, you know, and that was never the divine plan. The other thing I'm reminded of is in Psalm 33, verse 12, there is a, a, a verse, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, we usually assume that referred to ancient Israel alone, you know, not to other nations, except you remember that God said to Moses, Israel's my firstborn son. That's my message to, for you to deliver to Egypt, which implies that the, the human race is one big family, not only from Adam, but from God the Father, but it's one huge broken family. And so those of us who are called by Christ, we are called into the world to use the supernatural grace to bring about natural unity as much as possible. When in the last 70 years has this been clearly taught? It hasn't been explicitly denied. Well, yes, it has. But for the most part, we have just been really kind of skating instead of diving into the um, into the sacred mysteries. And so I'll be honest, I'm not very surprised by what's going on. I mean, I admit that with the LGBTQ agenda, it's gone further, much faster than I even I expected. I am not an optimist. My wife is. And so looking at the situation, 
uh, and seeing how deeply divided the church has been, and not just after Vatican II, but it was already, it's the, these seismic fault lines perhaps were imperceptible in the 50s. But I'm a student not only of church history and salvation history, but American Catholic history. When I go back and I, I recognize that there are fundamental flaws, you know, whatever you think of the theory of evolution, it fits into the physical realm, not the spiritual. And yet you adopt that as a worldview and progressive narratives then end up being objective fact. And what a false transfer it is. You know, so wherever we fall on the spectrum of opinion when it comes to the theory of evolution with regard to natural science, it doesn't work in the spiritual and the social realm. And yet I think Catholics imbibed it so deeply that they just kind of assumed that this super dogma is going to unite the natural and the supernatural, Catholics in America and the entire West. And again, it's like, uh, not even close. That's not going to happen. And so right now, I think a lot of Catholics are wandering around without a compass or a map. And they're kind of wondering, who do I listen to? Because it's not just the nation that is deeply divided by a Catholic president who professes to be interested in unity. It's also the church that's divided. You know, we published a book by Ralph Martin, uh, A Church in Crisis. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's unforgettable. I mean, and it, it's in some ways alarming. In other ways, it brings a sense of peace and calm because it emphasizes not only the lordship of Jesus Christ and prayer, but the fact that redemptive suffering has always been the order of the day for anyone who wants to get here to heaven. And you know, that's what hope is about. It's not the election cycle so much as a difficult future good is how hope is defined. But when we look at that as Christians, as Catholic Christians, we recognize that becoming a saint is indispensable. Without holiness, you will not see God, Hebrews tells us. But if holiness, if sanctity, if sainthood is the goal, we've got to recognize it's not just a difficult future good. The object of our hope is humanly impossible. It's only something that supernatural grace enables us to be. And even the sacraments don't make holiness easy or automatic. It's possible, but it's going to be very difficult. It's involving a carrying of the cross. And again, these themes are not denied for the most part, but they're ignored because we want to kind of cash in on what we can do in our political action with regard to our faith and harness as much of the Catholic population as we can. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's all you're doing, there's something profoundly wrong with that. Absolutely. Any, any parting word for, words for us with regard to uh, your book, Where Can We Get It? And, um, and what would you like to say at the end? I am grateful and proud to uh, be the editor-in-chief of Emmaus Road, an Emmaus academic, and Emmaus Road Publishing published this, as well as Hope to Die and the First Society, and most of my recent books, along with Dr. Ralph Martin's book, Church in Crisis. So go to stpaulcenter.com, stpaulcenter.com. And in a matter of weeks, in fact, uh, on Ash Wednesday, I'm also releasing uh, a, a series. Uh, Journey Through Scripture has done a number of series, the Bible and the Sacraments, the Bible and the Virgin Mary, the Bible and the Church Fathers. But this time, it is cultivating Eucharistic amazement. It's entitled Parousia, the Bible and the Mass. It'll be free throughout Lent, beginning on Ash Wednesday. And we've harnessed R.D. Delgado, who has Hollywood experience, a faithful Catholic as well. 
And we've put together something that I'm convinced is exciting. You know, parousia is the Greek word for presence. In our Webster's Dictionary, it's the word for the second coming because fundamentalists have generally hijacked and redefined it. But when we profess the real presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he is that regardless of who's in the White House, we recognize that wherever the Eucharist is, there is the King, and wherever the King is, there is his kingdom. And so it is a Eucharistic kingdom. It is a real presence. That is a Eucharistic parousia. And who is there? Again, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, even when I denied it for years as a Protestant, and even when I'm distracted. That reality is not about conjuring up warm, fuzzy feelings. It is the objective fact of the sacred mystery, the Mysterium Fidei. And you know, I'm really excited about Perusia, the Bible and the Mass, especially because throughout Lent of this year, it will be available for free online streaming. And so uh, again, stpaulcenter.com for the book, stpaulcenter.com slash mass. And that's how you can get access to this new series. But thanks for asking. But also, thank you, John Henry, for your hospitality, for your good work, and for the fun that we've had today. God bless you. Thank you so much, Scott, for being with us again. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we are communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to lifesitenews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. 
May God bless you and keep you. And we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.